Now, grab your Bibles, if you will, and follow, follow, if you will, with me as I read from that which is inerrant and infallible and inspired, the very mind of God as black words on a white page. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17, it goes like this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk uh, come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. As you may recall, that last week um, I... Uh, we, we were in the first half of chapter 4, and I pointed out that Paul is moving, uh, after the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's moving in chapter 4, he's moving from doctrine to duty. And in verse 1, he calls us to this worthy walk. And I told you last week that this appeal of his is really divided up into two halves. The first half has to do, he's addressing that to a group, a group of people, the church. And he's telling the church how, what she should look like. Then uh, we come to verse 17, and the emphasis is different. It's not directed at a group. It's directed at individuals. It's directed at, at, at individual Christians. But it, the, the appeal is the same. It's an appeal to a worthy walk, a walk that's worthy of the calling by which you were called. One half he talks to the church. The other half he talks to individuals. But, but I want to say something, um, really, that I said last week before we go any further. Guys, um, if this is the first sermon you've ever heard at Grace Evan, if it were, and you walked out of here, I think you could draw some conclusions that are very dangerous and very unfortunate. Um, because I'm about to describe an appeal that the Apostle Paul makes to people as to how they should live. If this is the only sermon that you've ever heard here, you might conclude that Paul is saying something that he's not saying, or that you might conclude that Jimmy Young is saying something that he's not saying. Because, guys, um, uh, when you hear what's in this text, there, there is a, there's an opportunity for you to come to the conclusion that Paul is telling you how it is that you can become a Christian. 
That is not true. That is not what he is doing with this text. Gang, left to myself, I'm always going to produce a religion that emphasizes a self-saving, that is, that I can save myself through my performance, through my efforts, through earning it. Um, and, and so if you listen to what said here, you might walk away and say, okay, he's telling us how one becomes a Christian. And that's not what's going on here, guys. Let me explain. I told you last week, I must emphasize again, Paul in his letters always begins like he does in the book of Ephesians, like he does in Romans. In Romans, he takes 11 chapters and introduces these wonderful themes of redemption, And then he comes to chapter 12 and he says, in light of those wonderful themes, I want you to uh, present your bodies as living sacrifices. The appeal to present your bodies is based on all that has come before. He does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. He spends three chapters explaining who we are in Christ Jesus. Having done that, he comes to chapter 4 and then he makes his appeal. His appeal is based on what he has said in the first three chapters about who we already are. Guys, that's that's imperative. You can never rearrange that order. The order is not, go live like this and you'll become a Christian. The order is, because you have become a Christian Go live like this. The, the, the religion of the, of the masses is, if I live a certain way, then I'm acceptable. And gang, that's the wrong order. Just like you find in the book of Ephesians, just like you find in the book of Romans, the first thing he tells us is who we are. You don't do something to become something. You become something and then do something. Do you get that? That's imperative, guys. You don't do something to become something. You don't live a certain way so that you'll become a Christian. You become a Christian, and then then he makes his appeal. Duty flows out of who I am, not the other way around. Now, guys, this morning, we're talking about duty. We're talking about what we're supposed to look like. But Paul is not telling you how to become a Christian. He's telling you how you're supposed to live because you are a Christian. Okay? (laughs) Can't ever confuse those. All right. So what he does is make his appeal here about what an individual believer should look like. And before he ever gets to any, any positives about what I should look like, he describes what I used to look like. And I want you to notice the words that he uses, the the incredibly powerful words that he uses to describe the non-Christian world. Look at your text, guys. It's um, verse 1. Don't walk as the Gentiles in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Okay, let's stop right there. Three words, the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated because of ignorance. Do you you see the commonality in those three terms? 
That is, I've got a futile mind, a darkened understanding, and I'm alienated as a result of ignorance. Gang, one of the chief distinctions between a believer and an unbeliever is how we think. How the believer thinks is vastly different than how the non-believer thinks. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, pagans don't have any solutions for us. They can't. Because they have a darkened understanding. Now, if that were all that Paul said, you would think, okay, if the problem is futile minds and darkened understanding and and alienation because of ignorance, then, then I know what will fix that. Education, more education will fix that. But then Paul goes on. He says, um, still in verse 18, due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous. You know, when you get hard, when you get really hard, you get calluses. Guys, you know what a sociopath is? A sociopath is somebody that um, commits crimes and has no compunction of conscience for having done so. His heart has grown so hard that it no longer fun- his conscience no longer functions. There's a hardness of heart that has led to a callousness. He goes on and have given themselves up to sensuality. Guys, <clears throat> is there any debate from any circle in any place as to the abject sensuality of our culture? Guys, it's not just that sensuality is present, but men give themselves, give themselves to sensuality. And then finally he says, greedy to practice every form of impurity. It's not just that I like impurity, but I'm greedy for it. I want all I can get of it. And guys, I, I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know whether the hardness of the heart led to the darkened understanding or the darkened understanding led to the hardness of heart. But I know this much. When a man chooses to live his life apart from the living God, that's what he looks like. He's given himself to sensuality. He is greedy for impurity. He is callous and hardened and hard. There's a darkness to his understanding. There's an alienation because of ignorance. There's a futility to his mind. You know, I don't think we like to think of ourselves as being, as non-Christians, when we were non-Christians, as being that lost. And and I don't think we think of non-Christians as being that lost. But ladies and gentlemen, this much is true. Ignorance won't fix, or education won't fix this. The only thing that will fix this is the exchange of a heart of stone to be replaced with the heart of flesh, which is something the Bible calls the rebirth. Calls it regeneration. It takes out a heart of hardness and replaces it with a, a heart of flesh. And you know, guys, um, even being converted, not, um, even being a Christian doesn't remove all of the scars that, that this produced in us as we lived as non-Christians. We bring that stuff with us into the kingdom. That is, we bring the detritus of living like this. We bring that with us into the kingdom. 
And of course, that's where the church is supposed to come in. The church is supposed to help you get beyond or move beyond the scars that were inflicted while we were non-Christians. You know, guys, um, I I think if we viewed ourselves like Paul described the non-Christian, that is, our previous, when we were non-Christians, I believe if we thought of ourselves like that, if we, if we remembered that's where we came from spiritually, then it seems to me that we would take every opportunity available to find help from someplace to help us tame our flesh. But the reason that we're not so eager for that kind of help is because we don't view ourselves as being that bad off. And because we've got this mind that is, um, because we think too highly of ourselves, we, we, don't, we don't certainly view ourselves as having come from that. And so we toy with spiritual things. We toy with sin. Guys, this is who we were. Futility of mind, darkened understanding, alienated because of ignorance, hardness of heart, callous, given over to sensuality, and greedy for impurity. That was who we were. Knowing that ought to make us far more eager to find some place, which the church is supposed to be that place, but find some place that will help me tame what's left of that. Now, that, that's the, really the first half of the, the text, or the first part of the text. The second part is that he begins to discuss the new life that we have in Christ. If you've still got your Bibles, look what he does. He says in uh, verse 22, put off your old self. Verse 24, he says, put on the new self. Do you see that old self, new self thing in there? He says one is to be put off, one is to be put on. Put off the old, put on the new. Now, guys, notice how he says primarily that is done. Um, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Look at the word, you have heard about him and were taught in him. Look at verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Gang. One of the first evidences that we have been brought to Christ is that we're, we get a new way to think. There's a whole new way of viewing things There's a sense in which Christ is learned, that Christ is taught to us because it is going to show up in a renewed mind. That's not the only place where Paul says that. He says it in Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Folks, Christians... Christians are supposed to think differently. They're supposed to have value systems that are vastly different. Their perspectives, their... Those things have been changed. 
Because now I've learned Christ. I've been taught who he is and what he's like. And my mind is renewed. Guys, that's the first evidence that something has taken place in me that has brought me out of this kingdom of darkness and planted me in another whole new kingdom. Now, guys, we've got to move on to the text, but... You do need to notice that much. I'm putting off the old and I'm putting on the new. One's old, one's new. And the old has got to be put off. And the new's got to be put on. But notice in verse 25, this is where he starts with some specifics. Therefore, having put away adultery. Did your Bible say that? He says, therefore, having put away adultery. Stealing. Did your Bible say that? No. Notice what the first thing Paul mentions, the first specific that he mentions, concerning the thing that ought to be put away from us as believers. Falsehood. Lying. You know, that's interesting to me, that when Paul starts mentioning specifics, the first thing that comes to mind is the thing that ought not be mentioned among us is that we're liars. Guys, um, coming to know Jesus Christ means that I am now in a relationship with the truth, yes. But not just saying it. But living it. I don't live a lie. Guys, when I was in seminary, um, I read a book by John Murray entitled The Principles of Conduct. And there's a chapter in the book called The Sanctity of Truth. You know, I don't think we... I, I don't think we think of truth as sacred. I'm not really sure that we're impressed with the importance of truth to God. Now, there are historians who will tell you that the, uh, the thing that ultimately brought about the demise of the Soviet Union was because truth was nowhere to be found. They said it got so bad that in the city of Moscow, the newspaper, which was named Pravda, which is a Russian word which means truth, that the people who read Pravda couldn't even trust the weather forecast. And because of the absence of truth, the culture disintegrated. There's something ennobling about the truth. And the one thing that ought to be important to us, not simply that we're related to the truth, but that we so value it. You know, um, have you noticed, and I, I, I think of this often, and just in, just in conversations with people, they say things like this. They say, uh, <clears throat> well, I'll tell you the truth. And I want to interrupt them at that point. And I want to say, no, no, no. Tell me some lies. And they'll they'll say, uh, you want me to be honest? Oh, no, no. Don't be honest with me. Be dishonest with me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are so used to lying and and having people lie to us that, that we have to call attention to the occasions where we're not lying. You know, in the New Testament, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this rather odd thing. He says, let your yeas be yeas and your nays, nays. Do you know what that means? Does that sound weird to you? Let your yeas be. 
You know what it means? It means simply that when a yes comes out of my mouth, it means yes. And when a no comes out of my mouth, it means no. Because they are so used to us being truthful that it needs no augmenting. It needs no profanity. That's the truth. No, no. Just a yes or a no. You know, um, <laughs> people, people lie. We lie. But we don't drink a glass of wine. And we don't go to the movies. I, I, I simply want to inform you of this, ladies and gentlemen. When Paul starts mentioning specifics about what is a worthy walk, he doesn't mention movies and wine. He mentions falsehood. The thing that's important in the mind of the Apostle Paul is that we be people of the truth. i got to move on, but the the next thing that he says in, in verse 26, it's an imperative. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ladies and gentlemen, the emotion of anger is not intrinsically evil. There is such a thing as Christian anger. In fact, there are instances where if you're not angry, it is to sin. Um, and, if, and if anger is sin, then Jesus sinned because he's described in Mark 3, 5 as being angry. But guys, that's not the part I want you to see. The other part is where he says, be angry. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Listen to me. If I could teach marriages that one principle, do not let the sun go down on your anger. If I could teach marriages that one principle, I could save a lot of marriages. In my premarital counseling, I always talk about this principle right here. You know, I know that the two of you are going to get angry at one another. And, uh, but the admonition of the scriptures is do not let that anger go to bed with you. Because if you hold on to anger too long, it becomes bitterness. And if you hold on to the bitterness too long, it becomes revenge. And I see that sequence being played out in marriage after marriage. My married brother and sister... You are being told that if you're angry with your spouse, don't you dare turn the lights off until it's settled. Oh, but Jimmy, i got to go to work tomorrow morning and it's early. Do not let the sun... Do you think this is some kind of poetry? It's a vital principle in human relationships, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, there are times that I must be angry. But I am never to let the sun go down on my anger. I'd love to say more. But he, he also says in verse 28, let the thief steal no longer, um, but rather let him labor. That is, get a job. Stop the stealing work. But then again... I think we know that. Look at the other part of the admonition. He says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
We're to be people who are ready to share the, proce- the proceeds of our work. You know, there are some of us, there are some of us who make more than we need. And you know what that extra is for? It tells you right here. You know, guys, we've got a, 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 a social phenomenon that is going on today in all over the country called Occupy Wall Street. And the Occupy Wall Street folks are really infuriated over the fact that there, there's these two levels or strata in the, in the American culture that you have the haves and the have-nots or the rich and the not rich, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's not a whole lot that I can do about the Occupy Wall Street. But I can tell you this, that in the Christian church, and that's who we're talking about here is God's people. We are to be people who don't know, who don't know what it means to hoard. We've been given extra. And the extra that we've been given is supposed to be something that's shared. I have a friend, his name is Bill Lyle, and Bill Lyle's dead now. And he was a veterinarian and a very good one, a world-class vet, um, uh, worked on racehorses. And uh, Bill, Gar- Bill Lyle had a, um, had a principle, and his principle was this. I want to make enough money so that I can pri- provide for my family and one more. <laughs> Gang, get a work, get a job. We know all that. We all want jobs. Stop that stealing. I think that's no new news. The vital part of that for us, I think, is the, the extra. The extra is to be dealt with. As if it's been given us so that we can share it. Gang, um, we got to hurry. Verse 29, he mentions, let no corrupting talk. Um, the, the Greek word there is uh, saparos. Um, it just means rotted. Uh, no slander, no injurious talk, which is so common among Christians. You know, I, I would suggest that the, the most frequent sin among Christians is an unsanctified mouth. Or, or, is it, or is mine the only one? <laughs> and then he gives you kind of a summary principle there in verse 30 when he's talking about not grieving the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know how you grieve the Holy Spirit, don't you? You just live an unholy life. Just don't do any of all these things that he's calling us to. And that's something that grieves the Holy Spirit. And then the final text, the final verse of the, of the text, verse 32, be kind. You know, that's not really valued very much, at least among men. Strength is, um, intelligence is, being a leader is valued. But kindness, kindness as a virtue for men, that doesn't get promoted much. Uh, Men um, concentrate on other things. But the New Testament is calling us to kindness. And then Then the last half of that sentence, ladies and gentlemen, is, I can't tell you how important it is, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Greek word there is charizomenoi. The the root of the verb is um, charis, which is the Greek word for grace. Literally, it probably should be translated more, it's something like this. 
acting in grace towards one another, just as God in Christ acted in grace toward you. Gang, um, I say this often, but I don't ever want you to ever believe or think that I think of myself as a good anything, but certainly not a good counselor. But I can tell you that, that the amount of counseling that I do, that I am engaged in, almost 100% of the time, it all comes down to that. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because usually if the marriage is bad, then... There's all kinds of ugliness in between, and maybe somebody's done something really stupid. And so I'm in the position of trying to encourage forgiveness. I'm in the position of asking people to act in grace towards your spouse as God in Christ acted in grace towards you. Do you understand, oh offended party, do you understand that you have something that you didn't deserve? Do you understand that we as the people of God are in possession of something so valuable and it's not something we earned? Do you understand that we are people who are forgiven? Because God in Christ acted in grace towards us. And I am being called to model that towards somebody else. You know, guys, I can promise you this. You listen. You will never, you will never be able to make yourself forgive. But you will find resources to forgive in the gospel. As I come to this last clause, that is, as God in Christ forgave me, as I ingest that, over and over and over again, then I find resources to grant forgiveness because I become more and more overcome that I'm forgiven. Forgiveness cannot be done with clenched teeth and gripped fists. I'm going to forgive. It won't work. But in the gospel, there are resources for us, ladies and gentlemen, and here they are. The, The way that we come to the place over time of being able to forgive is that I begin to draw freshly and deeply from the gospel that says to me, 
I have forgiveness that I didn't deserve. And so, you don't deserve it. But I'm going to grant it anyway. You know, guys, there is enough in those eight verses, which we didn't spend much time on, but enough in those eight verses to give us just about every piece of instruction we could ever possibly want or possibly need in the framing of our Christian lives. What is God's will for you? There it is. You know, John MacArthur used to say, or still says, I think, that 90% of God's will is found in the Word. Well, you know what? That's probably low. (laughs) I know you have to make choices about what job we take and and, uh, who to marry and all that business. But in the main, in the main, ladies and gentlemen, the will of God is outlined for us right here. This is what we're supposed to look like. Hear me, not to become a Christian. But because we are Christians. Have you become a Christian? You know, you become a Christian when you finally give up your self-salvation project and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And then, that done, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, I try to live like this. Our Father, we're grateful for the instruction that you give us. Forgive us that we, uh, that that you've given us, but forgive us that we have uh, treated it with uh, a good deal of indifference, a good deal of um, unimportance, and maybe, Lord, because we have not seen ourselves as once having futile minds and darkened understandings and ignorance and hard hearts and sensuality and greedy for impurity. Maybe if we are reminded of that, then we would we would eagerly seek opportunities for somebody to help us tame what's left over of our unconverted life. But Father, as people who understand the sweetness of the gospel, the gospel that says it's not just good people that get into heaven, it's not that good people get in at all, it's that there's some sinful people who have found a great Savior. And as those sinful people, we come to lay claim to him again, being reminded that because we are who we are in grace, there's a certain lifestyle that you expect of us. So grant us grace, fresh supplies of grace that we can go live in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.